senior leaders from Powered by Nine, IAG, Snaffle Aspire 42 and Visit Victoria have been added to the extensive lineup for Mumbrella's Sports and Entertainment Marketing Summit on April 7. Learn how to overcome pitfalls surrounding creating successful branded content whilst delivering better business results in the process. Book your tickets now at www.mumbrella.com.au slash sports hyphen entertainment. Back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm your host, Callum Jasmine, and joining me on today's panel to break down Australia's media and marketing industry is Deputy and Acting Editor Andrew Banks. Hey, Callum. And Senior Reporter Emma Shepherd. Hello. Later in the episode, Em will be speaking to our media's CEO, Jane Huxley. The conversation has a particular focus on International Women's Day, which occurred this week on Tuesday. Jane provides a perspective on being one of the few CEOs of Australian publishers and the progress the industry has made in this space. But first up, a couple of items in the news, Banksy. Yes, Callum. First, we're going to discuss uh, Disney Plus's proposed introduction of an advertising-supported subscription model and where this could potentially be taking the industry. And then we're going to do a recap of how the media and marketing world is responding to the developments of the crisis in Ukraine. And for that section, we will be joined by Pure Public Relations' Phoebe Neto. So Disney revealed over the weekend that it would be introducing a cheaper ad-supported subscription model to its Disney Plus platform uh, at the end of 2022 in America and then following that a rollout into the global markets in 2023. This uh, is aimed at creating a lower price point offering with chairman of Disney Media and Entertainment Distribution, Kareem Daniel, saying that it's a win for everyone, consumers, advertisers and storytellers. The first question, I guess, would probably be, is it a win for everyone? Interestingly, someone in the Mumbrella comments section said, I subscribe to these things so I don't have to watch ads. Banksy, you've spoken to a few media buyers regarding this. What are the initial impressions? Yeah, uh, from what I could gather, I spoke to um, Chris Walton from Nun Media and um, he had some really interesting things to say about uh, the situation, one being... Um, about the model itself, um, we, you know, I asked him about what sort of price point um, things would develop from and wh- where they would start. Initially, he sees it as being a basic zero-cost ad to start with and then they may introduce uh, a tiered se- setup where they have uh, like a small cost um, and give people the opportunity to move from, say, a basic to a premium um, system um, he, uh, what, what I found most interesting, I guess, was the access that that brings to new audiences from advertisers. Um, and, a, and one interesting thing too was, uh, about some of the roadblocks, I guess, that would need to be overcome such as ad loads. I mean, we spoke about this last week, Callum, about how some streaming shows have ads which repeat and things like that. They would really have to make sure that they don't, um, create a situation where it's not smooth and seamless. Um, You know, they would really want to get on top of that sort of thing. Um, But he did say that from a buyer's point of view, access to really good data um, would determine, um, you know, how useful it is for advertisers moving forward Um, and also the added value angles that they could sort of upsell from like the basic model to get people to move to a a more premium model um, as well. So, 
you know, it's about wider subscription base. It's about increasing their revenue streams and allowing for upselling, which was some interesting points he made. I also I spoke to um, Gemma Dawkins, which who is uh, head of digital at PhD, and a, a kind of interesting note that she made was that it's not a particularly new model, although it sort of is within the SVOD space. We've already seen print publications doing this to keep the cost of their paywalls affordable, and then we've also got um, things like Paramount and Optus Sport, who are I guess introducing advertising to keep their packages competitive. Whereas um, Ben Willey from Spinach, who we had on the podcast a fortnight ago, was telling me from his view it was essentially a matter of time until one of the streamers jumped into this ad model space. I do want to dig into some of the points you brought up there, Banksy, in a little bit. But first, um, just sticking on Disney, Em, did you manage to get any more local details on this one? Uh, I know we have... Speaking of the price point there, we have already seen a price hike of $3 for Disney Plus since the platform was launched in 2019. I was really hounding the poor communications person here locally at Disney. Uh, I just wanted any kind of update at all uh, and what they can share with us here and what that means uh, locally for Disney here. Uh, They didn't have anything extra to say uh, other than what was released uh, in the US press release that we covered. Uh, They did say that whatever happens in the US, they will... They will watch closely uh, to see any kind of trends, what works, what doesn't. Once they kind of get a grasp of the market over there and how that works over there, they'll sh- kind of shift their focus to, uh, you know, obviously release that internationally. Um, but I think it'll be really interesting to see people's reactions when they have an option to pay for a service with ads. You know, uh, will will people expect to pay for a service with ads? Is it going to be a positive result uh, for their customers we'll just have to wait and see as well too emma i did um cut you know get some information this morning uh on disney plus overseas and they're saying that they will be careful with their ads um they're going to be well curated they're going to have a really light ad load and they're going to be in keeping with their audience so it's not essentially a free-for-all from an advertising point of view mm. and are there any sort of uh, indications? I, I, I know at this stage it's obviously still in the very early points of this strategy, but is there any sort of indications as to the content which will be on these lower ad-supported model? Uh, the only thing that we know at this stage is it'll be content from the usual suspects, the usual brands, which are Disney, Pixar, Star Wars, Marvel, and National Geographic. But definitely I think there will be updates in the next couple of months here locally when the Disney upfronts are on. So we'll definitely keep an eye out for that one um, just to see if they have any more kind of you know, updates on, on what's going to happen here. It's interesting too, Callum, as well, what, what Chris Walton said was that, you know, it's a, commerci- a commercial imperative for them to protect their base and propel growth. So I would imagine from a content point of view, they want to make sure that they're growing their audience and they're engaging them um, even at that free level. They do want to kind of attract that that audience and grow it. So, yeah, I think that that's something to consider. And there are quite a few players in the uh, the local streaming market already. M. What are, have, we, have we had any comments from the the other players? You know, the stands, Netflixes, and the, the, and is there any idea how Australians will be looking to respond to this in terms of an uptake? Yeah, look, as we know, there are an array of different SVOD services at the moment available. You know, Stan and Netflix. Um, Netflix, you know, we do know from that we'll, they'll they'll never have ads. We we saw the CEO Reed Hastings 
come out and say the reason the service has avoided ads is that there's much more growth in the consumer market than there is in advertising. He said he isn't opposed to ads on a philosophical level. He just doesn't think that they are in the best interest of the business. Uh, And also I did some digging. Um, Last September, Deloitte released uh, its media consumer survey uh, and that found that 47% of Aussies are willing to view advertising for discounted SVOD subscriptions. I think that's really interesting. I, I really can't wait to see how this will, you know, the cons- consumers and the users will react uh, to this. Um, it did say, though, that as free-to-air viewing shifts over to BVOD on devices, particularly for younger generations, willingness to engage with advertisements may be a bit of a challenge. So we'll just have to wait and see. I, I guess an, an interesting uh, point on the kind of local perspective um, back in December, an interview between uh, Viacom, CBS, now Paramount's chief sales officer, uh, Rod Prosser with Tim Burrows. Um, and on a story reported on Mumbrella, he uh, hinted towards the rollout of Pluto TV in Australia, uh, likely in 2022 or 2023, Pluto TV being a ad-supported um, SVOD service. He told Tim that the the company believes Pluto can help Viacom CBS further gain growth in the fast-growing ad-supported streaming sector, which the company already owning services like Hulu and ESPN, plus overseas. I I did follow this up for this morning because we hadn't really heard much about that since. It does appear as though Prosso may have um, jumped the gun a little bit and revealed a little too much on that interview Essentially, the launch of Pluto is really hinging on global to to, to fully go forward with this plan, which um, at this point is still, I guess, stuck in the mud a little bit. I know I do understand it is definitely on the table um, and that Paramount globally is launching it very much on a country-by-country basis, not really rushing that out. Um, But I think in regards to the local aspect here, the development of Pluto as a business would probably the way it would play out is um, still being developed and a few of those actual content arrangements may be proving a little tricky to figure out. An interesting point would be to look at uh, w- whether we are going to see for a further leak uh, from streamers and platforms into subscription-based models. Banksy, did you get any impression there? Yeah, just one last point uh, to go with that question, Callum. I, I think it's important that Chris mentioned as well that not not all the platforms are actually going to move to that model. He see he thinks that a lot of them will move um, that way just to protect their base. But but where the big players um, already have a good foothold and are established in this country as being the premier subscription service. Um, there's no real need for them to introduce that model because essentially, you know, they want to position themselves as being the one, the premier one that people will pay for to to not have that as an option. So it's it's worth keeping in mind that that is that is uh, something to consider with these subscription services as things develop. Yeah, Dawkins also from from PhD also suggested that it does seem unlikely that some of the more established um, players in the market would be going towards that. There are a, a few interesting points that I did want to bring up uh, based on a few things you said earlier, Banksy. I think an interesting comparison to look at now would maybe be Spotify. Um, of course, Spotify does have its premium service. And then on the other side, while not uh, a cheaper option, it is free. Uh, it has an ad-supported model. So 
in um, Spotify's Q4 results, which they released at the start of January, uh, they reported 180 million premium subscribers, which does currently bring in the majority of their revenue. But their ad supported revenue is actually growing much faster at um, a rate of 40% uh, increase based on uh, last year's same figures, that being 394 million euros or 591 million Australian dollars. As far as I could find out, um, Spotify does have more free subscribers than it does premium, that being 226 million, and that is growing at a faster rate, that number growing by 17 million compared to 8 million paid in Q4. Of course, this is quite different to those uh, to what we might expect from something like Disney where they will be still asking for a payment, but you know, just an interesting comparison there. There are conflicting reports reports, um, out there whether subscription levels uh, across multiple platforms are likely to grow or decrease post-pandemic. Interestingly, this year, Netflix's stock took a big hit in January um, directly after it released its Q4 and full-year financials. It actually dropped 28% in five days after it reported that it had missed its subscriber target by just 200,000. Um, that total being 221.8 million, them looking for 220 million. It also reduced its subscribers' targets for Q1 2022 down to 2.5 million compared to growth same quarter last year of 3.97 million and the year before, which keeping in mind this was uh, when we entered the pandemic, they actually added 15.76 million in that quarter. This isn't just Netflix, though, rather than a wider sort of um, industry trend with uh, subscription growth slowing down um, and maybe these platforms realizing that the the kind of exponential growth we've seen can't keep up forever. I think the key point with Disney sort of uses its back catalog uh, as the real selling point. And you mentioned those key titles like Star Wars and National Geographic and uh, Marvel that it really uses to drive it. Um, maybe this is a sign that, uh, that that Disney just isn't hitting the subscribers at the rate it was expecting. And maybe what they've seen is that the writing's on the wall and thought, you know what, let's be the ones to jump first. There isn't too much of a downside to this because, you know, if someone signs up, then you've still got that advertising revenue coming in. And if they're... Um, if their subscriber base is slowing down and, you know, they did mention that they still have that target of 230 to 260 million by financial year 2024, then, you know, who knows what could happen here. I guess finally, one last point would be um, what what does it mean for, for advertisers? Because that is, you know, the point that we're talking about. How does it compare to BVOD and what does it sort of mean locally for broadcasters? Any insights there? Um, I think it's to do essentially with how people subscribe. So um, what what Chris mentioned was that overseas apparently um, that the subscription number for individual people is heading upwards to double figures. But in Australia, most people on average subscribe to about two or three um, streaming services here. So being able to have things open up on a level where things are becoming free and giving them access to things would then allow the advertisers then to get on board to those new audiences that they wouldn't normally have seen it previously. And it really opens up the market, I guess, from, from an advertising point of view and a revenue from, from a buyer's perspective. 
Yeah, Ben pointed out that uh, he reckons it's a good thing overall for the industry, but potentially bad for broadcasters. BVOD is already an area where broadcasters are very much working on and having any more competition in the space probably can't be a good thing. Dawkins also pointed out that um, in a MPA Australia online video consumer and insights analysis, analytics report last year, SVOD accounted for 70% of the total premium video sharing whilst BVOD accounted for 30%. And while this is a big growth for the broadcasters during COVID, it still is less than a third of the time spent on streaming uh, well, streaming video content in 2021. Um, I think also a thing that something that Ben pointed out was that it's not just the broadcasters that are going to be sweating potentially from this. Something like YouTube may be looking over their shoulders because, you know, with all the data points that some of these platforms have already, engagement levels, what the, what buyers have found engagement levels and streaming platforms are much higher than something even like YouTube. So buyers like him might be looking to pay a premium even to just be on those platforms. Coming up next, the media, tech and marketing worlds impose their own sanctions on Russia and Phoebe Neto joins us. Joining us for this section is Pure Public, uh, sorry, it's Pure Public Relations, yeah. Um, yeah. Is, <laughs> joining us for this section is Pure Public Relations, Phoebe Neto. Welcome, Phoebe. Thank you. And before we do get into this section, I also just like to stress that we are going to be looking at uh, the war over in Ukraine from the perspective of our industry. If the war is kind of, or the the crisis is close to you personally, we hope that you are getting the right support, and then whoever and that whoever is relevant to you is staying safe and well. If this isn't something you really want to listen to right now, I would suggest maybe skipping uh, past this to the uh, last part of the podcast. Um, so it emerged on Friday overnight that British advertising holding group WPP is pulling out of the Russian market, saying that its presence would be inconsistent with the values it holds as a company. WPP has almost 1,400 employees in Russia, which this move will impact, and a further 200 in Ukraine. Uh, Publicist CEO and Chairman Arthur Sadoon also sent an internal memo around to the company's 350 Ukrainian employees, saying that uh, all of their salaries would be gu- guaranteed for the rest of the year, while Dentsu International's regional chief executive, Julia Malagori, also told The Drum that the company, which has uh, several agencies in the region, would be reviewing all of its client relationships in Russia, uh, having over 1,500 employees in the country. Banksy, what else are we seeing from uh, brands and platforms within our industry globally in terms of their response to this? Well, Callum, um, it's quite a lot, actually. Um, I'm just going through um, some of the the things that have come over in the last few days and continue to come through. Um, We look at the big players, such as McDonald's. Um, They've closed temporarily about 850 of their stores in Russia, um, which is about 9% of their revenue. Um, So that's quite a lot. Um, Coca-Cola is another one, suspended its business um, Starbucks has suspended their activity. I think they've got about 130 stores there in Russia. Amazon is, they've got a cloud computing unit there and they're going to stop accepting new customers in Russia and Belarus. Um, there is Twitch that's stopping their paying streamers in Russia. 
Uh, P&G is suspending all their media, advertising and promotional activity in Russia. And that's said to like significantly reduce their portfolio. Um, Stolichnaya is another one that's made in Latvia. They're, they're actually changing their name to Stoli because they don't want to be kind of have their referencing uh, their Russian sort of links. And an interesting one uh, comes from uh, Dan Murphy's. Uh, they're pulling all their Russian brands from their shelves um, here. And I guess, Emma, you have some information about that? I did. So I actually reached out to the umbrella company who own Dan Murphy's. Um, so an Endeavour Group a spokesperson basically said that um, 47 products that were identified to be of Russian origin have now been removed from its stores, hotels and online businesses. They have over 330 hotels and more than 1,650 stores in their fleet. So that's a huge huge thing to just pull all of those products, um, you know, around the country. Uh, and they did say to me, uh, as an organisation, Endeavour Group is deeply concerned with the situation in Ukraine and we call, uh, we join the calls for peace. Following feedback from a, a variety of stakeholders, we made the decision to remove products of Russian origin from our stores, hotels and online businesses. So that's what we got back from them today. Yeah, and we've also got Netflix and, and Flash, um, other other businesses as well, Callum. So it really is, uh, there's momentum happening um, and we don't really know where it's going at this stage. But I, I did speak to um, some industry leaders and they were pretty much sort of in a watch and wait um, mode at the moment. But one of them did say that, that what they would like to know is if if the agencies that have publicly withdrawn from Russia, um, they would like to know whether they are supporting their impacted staff, which I thought was an interesting question. Em, did you hear anything more locally in, in terms of the, the kind of response to this? Yeah, so um, obviously joining the Endeavour Group um, reach that we got before, uh, I, I actually reached out to TikTok locally as well. Um, you know, obviously they suspended their posting um, new videos uh, and their, you know, service basically in Russia. Uh, a TikTok spokesperson, uh, AUNZ, told us today, uh, TikTok is an outlet for creativity and entertainment that can provide a source of relief and human connection during a time of war when people are facing immense tragedy and isolation. However, our, um, however, sorry, our highest priority is the safety of our employees and our users and in light of Russia's new fake news law we have no choice but to suspend live streaming and new content to our video service in Russia while we review the safety implications of this law. Our in-app messaging service will not be affected. We will continue to evaluate the evolving circumstances in Russia to determine when we might fully resume our services with safety as our top priority. So Phoebe, a lot of action here. Uh, it's kind of a lot to take in. Apologies for the big long list. Um, and a, a lot of different kind of moves. Would you be able to give an insight into what the thinking or maybe the process between some of these might be and whether whether or not they do come across initially to you as being legitimate attempts? I, I'm sure there is some goodwill in here. But, but there are certainly a number of other factors that I'm sure have gone into to this thinking. Um, one would obviously be safety concerns for people on the ground and economic sanctions are going to have a flow-on effect 
to some of the businesses that have uh, a presence in Russia and or Ukraine. The economic impact will flow onto them. Um, and that, that's something that, that they are looking at, you know, proactively limiting damage there. Then there is also the reputational aspect of brands anticipating boycotts. Um, you know, if they don't pull the products off the shelf now, for example, are they going to have to do it reactively when consumers start to push for it? They're much better off doing it first. Um, I think a lot of the brands that are coming out vocal, vocally about this or having partial um, restrictions or suspensions, I do think that that is them trying to be in lockstep with their audience. They're trying to mirror what their consumers are saying vocally and um, some of that is just being on the bandwagon. Um, it's very emotive, so it's easy to get on the bandwagon. It's the populist view to, to support Ukraine and be anti-Russia, but that's also a little bit short-sighted if that's as far as the thinking goes. Um, there are plenty of Russians that would represent their customer base, and they may not even support what's happening at the moment either, so should they be ostracised? And if you really say that if, if the brands are saying that this is really about um goodwill and being responsible humanitarian brands they really need to be very careful that this is not a tokenistic gesture because yeah. they'll get away with it for the moment but soon people will start saying why are you only picking this crisis and why is this the only thing you are doing about it uh it's good they'll they'll be fine for now but this is not a short-term crisis and soon people are going to do a little bit more thinking and look at who's actually doing something meaningful and something authentic yeah i mean this, this is something issue. on on umbrella that we have kind of broached before i guess the area of um purpose-driven marketing and it does always end up being a tricky thing from brands because ultimately you know they are a brand and they're going to want to be looking out for that bottom line and their product. Um, we have seen it with previous other areas, which we won't go into this time around where they do, as you kind of touched on there, kind of potentially pander to a certain issue or follow the, the, what is kind of where the, the way that the wind's blowing, if, if you will, yes. what, what sort of things could brands actually be doing and, and, and organizations that is meaningful and is going to seem authentic and well, not seem authentic is authentic. Yes. Well, if you want to avoid virtual uh, value signaling, you need to put yourselves in, in, in the shoes of um, some armchair critics and, prepare to be open for immense scrutiny. So before you put yourself out there, having a vocal opinion, actually scrutinize the business yourself. Have you missed opportunities to do the right thing previously? Uh, is this in line with your values or do people even know that you've got values within the business? Have, have the values been formed inside out or are you attaching yourself to issues and then trying to retrofit them to your business? People can smell that inauthenticity a mile away. So that's the first thing they need to do. They actually need to scrutinize the brand and the business dealings themselves to avoid being social justice warriors that have just jumped on a bandwagon. Um, and then they need to look at how they can support an issue if it's right for them 
in a way that fits with the brand. So is there actually something meaningful that their particular product or service or brand proposition can align with that's relevant to the cause? So, for example, uh, the floods in Australia, if that's something that you can make a difference on, how can you actually align it to something that's unique about your business? Because then it makes a lot more sense. Um, or if you've got, you know, if, if you're a children's brand, then focus the Ukraine efforts that you want to make towards Ukrainian children. You know, it's very obvious, but it, it goes a long way to reducing the perception of this being a short-term token gesture and something that actually fits with the ethos of your business and something that customers will, will actually support you with you know they'll come alongside you and be part of that process too so it actually then is a longer term benefit for the brand and the cause and you you mentioned the 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 floods there it's obviously something that's ongoing um locally where where people are being affected by the the unfortunate situation uh north of the border for me here in victoria um this kind of stretches a little bit further in uh, beyond just brands and into advertising more generally. We've seen a few sort of clumsy uh, placements and spots from advertisers and, and publishers. What can they really be doing to, I guess, off the back of that, also be a little bit more sensitive to the situation? Yes, um, certainly anything that's pre-scheduled needs to be revisited and there are going to be some moments where you need to postpone your um, automated ads, your plan campaigns, programmatic social media schedule. I had an ad for um, a, I won't say the brand because I'm a very happy customer, but they had a competition where you could win a swimming pool. And this showed up in my newsfeed um, during the floods. And so that's not great timing. That really could have been postponed for a, a less intense time um across the country so have a look at your schedule um, and try and mirror the tone of the people that you're targeting so you might need to tone down some brand excitement people are hurting right now so and, and their attention is elsewhere so adjust to, to to suit their mood and their tone and the moment right now is serious it's focused on action and people are wanting to help in whatever small way they can and they don't feel like there's actually that much that they can do to help. So either support them with what they're feeling right now and if you can give them some sort of avenue where they can find a way of helping in some small way, then that's fantastic. If what you had planned doesn't fit with those immediate needs, then consider turning it down or postponing it. Well, uh, Phoebe, thank you for um, coming on the podcast today and helping us out with this section. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, M chats to our media's Jane Huxley on International Women's Day. So, hi, Jane. Thank you so much for sitting down with Mumbrella today. In it's person. In person, <laughs> exactly right. It's so nice to have you. Uh, now that you are kind of, you know, got your feet firmly underneath the desk uh, and in light of International Women's Day, mm -hmm. we wanted to kind of get your thoughts on being a female leader of a company where the majority, if I'm correct, 75% mm -hmm. of your employees are women. 
Yes, it, you are correct. But, you know, it, it's interesting that we still say female leader. I'm a leader, um, like anybody else out there, and anything that I'm doing in here, I think is something that most people should be doing. So it's funny on International Women's Day that we're still gendering leadership, where I think we need to move away from that. Uh, there's no question that we do have the majority female employees here. About 75% of the people that work here are women. And when you think about what we do, that makes sense. You know, women writing for women about women's stuff, um, that makes a lot of sense. Although we do have, you know, obviously 25% uh, male and they have a really good view um, to bring to our readers as well. So I don't want to underplay their role here. I do think that being a female, however, in this organisation right now is really important. I think I'm the first female CEO uh, here at R Media, formerly Bauer, formerly ACP, formerly Pacific, formerly, formerly. Uh, it's great to be a woman in this role. And I think it really comes back to the passion that I have around what we do. I grew up with these brands. You know, I grew up reading the magazines and the brands and the content that's generated by this company. So obviously I feel an affinity for it. I love it. I was reading these brands, you know, in the weeks and months before I even dreamt of taking this role. So it's something that is really core to who I am as a human. And I think that as a leader showing up in this business, it gives me a level of engagement and authenticity that's really important to the people that work here. I love what we do. I love our products and our brands, and that shows in how I lead the company. Being a women-focused publisher, does it help being a female leader? Yeah, and, and again, I think it does. And it's sort of see previous answer, right, um, in that... What we do need to do is make sure that we have the consumer in mind with the decisions that we're making every day in leadership or out in the business. Are we really thinking about who our reader is, who our consumer is and what they want from us? And if you have the same inclinations as your consumer, your customer, I think you are able to make better decisions about what it is that they want. Notwithstanding, we also never assume, right? So we spend a lot of our time asking our readers, our consumers and our teams here what it is that they want and what their views are on stuff. And that's important too. Um, I'm going to add one. Just because you have kind of come from tech and you know, you're such a power force now, uh, you know, a CEO of, of, of our media, do you think it's been harder being a woman, you know, kind of growing in the tech world, which is majority men, to now? And how, how was your journey from where, where you've started to now? I think it's a superpower, right, to be a woman. And I never saw it as anything other than that. I think what's important is that the vast majority of men, you know, let's say 99% of them are awesome. And yet we still give too much airtime to the small percentage of men that don't do the right thing or aren't showing up as well as they can or are still still have preconceived notions of the roles of women in the in the market i see i choose to see the 98 percent um, and these are people that i have worked with and built a career with and worked alongside of for you know almost the last 30 years and I wouldn't be where I am without them. Now, there's, there's no question that there are bad characters out there, but I can tell you there's more good than bad. And some of that is about mindset, and some of that is about how you choose to view your role. 
uh, in what's going on. And I have always found that when I've had troubles or issues or come across the bad characters, that there are plenty of good ones around, male and female, that you can go to for help and support and advice. And that's what I've done. So, you know, it's easy to vilify um, the other gender. And we don't need to. We don't need to do that. And, and that's certainly how I choose to view it. And it's absolutely how I've managed my career up until now. What do you think Australian women want from media and your key advertisers? Do you see any key opportunities? I see opportunities everywhere I look. We are not short of ideas and opportunities here. I think the goal for me is to make sure that we're prioritising the right ones. What they want from us is they want to be inspired. They want to be, you know, informed. They want to be you know, they, they want to be influenced by what it is that we say and what we think. I mean, we've got probably the best editorial talent in Australia for women right here in this building. And that's it's no mistake that they are generating extraordinary content that does all of those things for our customers. And they want us to keep doing that. They want us to do it in a way that is really authentic, uh, you know, not to sugarcoat and not to, you know, put a spin on things, but genuinely to, to report and write about things that we think that they want to hear. And that's what they want from us. They want more of that. And more broadly, now that you've returned to Australia, uh, what is something that surprised you both good and bad in terms of business culture? And did you notice any key changes? It's been challenging through COVID, right? So, you know, I did a, 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 had a lovely lockdown experience in London and then came out here and got to do it all again. Um, and so it, it's difficult to answer that question because we've been so COVID impacted. What I, what's been fantastic to see for me, you know, I got here and I think there were, I had about three months in the office with almost everybody before we got locked down again. So I did get that opportunity to meet everybody and at least start to put down the roots of really good relationships. But what has surprised me is how incredibly flexible and resilient this business is. We have not missed a single deadline in this company since COVID started. Every single publication has gone out on time of the quality that we would expect. Our, you know, our digital businesses are still running, they're still out there, um, and, and they, had, they did not skip a beat. And actually, I kind of was, I probably shouldn't have been surprised by that, but it's extraordinary the way that these, the team here just got on with it uh, and just kept doing what they're doing. So it shouldn't have surprised me that it did. Um, yeah, that's probably, that's probably what I would say. And how would you describe your management style or, you know, is there a who or what has been your main guide in this approach? We are, or I am, I think an amalgamation of the best and worst I've seen in my career. And that, I mean, when you get to a certain point, you've had, you've had the good, the bad, the ugly, and probably, like me, the extraordinary. You know, I have worked for some extraordinary companies and extraordinary leaders. And so what I've tried to do is to take the best of the leaders that I've had in the past and, and be mindful of the worst. You know, you can learn actually probably more when things are not going so well. Uh, you learn more and then you learn, learn more about who you are and how you're going to lead. And so there's no question to me that I am an amalgamation of the best and worst from my past. I think the, what I try to do is I just try to be normal, right? And, and you know, I have 
a number of roles that I fulfill every day. I'm the CEO here, but I'm also a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a sister, I'm a daughter, I'm a friend, I'm a cousin, I'm all of those things. And like everybody else, I'm trying to integrate all of those things into how I show up every day. And at time, you know, each of those roles takes a prominence and the others have to step back. And so I'm trying to show the company that I lead what it looks like to be normal. You know, I have good days and bad days and I'm probably more mindful and able to manage around those with the experience that I've had, but I'm just trying to show people what normal looks like. Do you think there's more pressure on women now that we have to wear so many hats? We've never not had to wear the hats. I think we are now talking about them more. And, you know, when I think, when I look to um, women leaders out there that I admire, and there are so many of them, you know, we're all talking about these things. It's no shame to have to juggle all of these things now. Um, and I think it was probably more hidden in the past. And, and I would like to be part of the dialogue where we do talk about those things in a really genuine way and where we respond in terms of leading our businesses to enable people to integrate the various roles a little bit more easily than they have in the past. Do you think after COVID, you know, with a lot of people working from home now and, you know, people, you know, start the business kind of coming back into the office, do you think as a business you're going to be a bit more lenient with, you know, people being able to work from home more? than pre-COVID? Yeah, and an interesting choice of the word lenient, right? Because what I see is a group of adults out there that are trying to make the best decisions that they can make every day, just like me, right? So, you know, we employ grown-ups here at R-Media and we have to trust that our people have good judgment in, in what they do every day and how they do it. So in that patch, you know, uh, between lockdowns, when I came back, I started to introduce this concept called activity-based working. This was pre the COVID lockdowns, because I do believe that people, you know, when they're given the ability to integrate their work in their life, and when you can trust them to have good judgment and figure it out, and when you're in a business where we're deadline driven, and it shows up if you're not playing your role here, that you're able to have a flexible approach to how people do their work. So activity-based working, a concept um, that I've used in other organisations that I've worked for, means that you essentially look at what you've got going on in your day and you choose where is the best place for me to do that work today. So if it's focused work, it might be at home. Mm. But, you know, if you're trying to do focused work and you're at home and you've got a family or young children, then maybe it's actually in a meeting room. Maybe it's in the public library. One of my, I started Pandora from Balmain Public Library. I've always been such an advocate of going and sitting in the library when you need to get your head clear. Um, you know, it might be here in a meeting room. It might be at a desk. So activity-based working is you look at your calendar for the week and figure out where it is that you need to do the work. Now, we have a group of principles that we've applied to activity-based working that we talk about with our leaders. We believe that team meetings are best done in person. We believe that creative work and brainstorming is best done in person. We believe that for great skills sharing and learning the craft, a lot of that, particularly for our younger editors and journalists, that's best done in person. But we also believe that things that are focused and require concentration, they're probably best done from a quiet space, whether it be your home, your kitchen table. You know, I've been known to do my board reports in the car, to be honest with you. So activity-based working is being able to integrate all of those things. Um, is there anything else that we haven't spoken about that you want to bring up? 
I mean, just I think I probably would say that I feel, um, which is why I said yes to this, right, is that for those of us who've been around for a while, it is absolutely incumbent on us to talk and share, right, and to share our experiences and talk about what we're doing. Um, and that's why I said yes today, you know, and, and I think that if we can continue to talk about what normal looks like, it gets amplified and it becomes more normal, right? So, you know, I've had things that I've been passionate about for a really long time and it's great to get a platform as you get more senior in your career to be able to talk about it. Definitely. Thank you so much for your time, Jane. Thank really you. And that's it for another week on the Mumbrella Cast. Please make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and check the website for more content and updates. Emma, Banksy, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Callum. And thanks again to Jane and thanks to Phoebe for joining us. See you next week.